God, we thank you that you have created us to share in your joy. Lord Jesus, you said that you spoke these things, that your joy would be in us and that our joy would be full. And so, Lord God, we pray that we would realize that joy, that we would know that joy, that like St. Paul said, we would rejoice in you always. Again, he says, I say rejoice. So, Lord God, we thank you that you are good and that you are worthy of, of joy. We offer ourselves to you this morning and we ask that you would help us to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Now stay standing. You know, it's traditional in a lot of churches to stay standing for the reading of the word and to actually read the word together. So this is what I would like to do uh, this morning. Sasha will put it up on the screen. All right, Psalm 88. When I lower my hand, we'll start reading. When I raise my hand, we'll pause because there are two say laws in this psalm. And I'm looking for pit sweat. There's not there, I don't think. But say law means pause, rest, and reflect, okay? So are you ready? I'll tell you what, I'll read the title. Okay, I'll read the title because the title is hard to understand. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master according to Mahalath Leonoth. That's probably the name of some type of, of music or something. A maskil, that's probably a type of poem or, or, or song. These are directions to the choir of Heman the Ezraite. In Chronicles, we read that Heman was one of the Levitical singers in the temple, in, in, the, in the choir. So it makes sense that Heman uh, was the same guy who wrote this psalm. Okay, okay, uh, now together when, when, I drop my, when I drop my arm. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves, Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O oh Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors, I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. 
Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. You may be seated. That's, uh, that's the end of the psalm. Does the Bible ever confuse you? <laughs> right? You know, there are a lot of psalms that express sorrow, but I think this is the only psalm that ends with, with sorrow, and sorrow is more than a bit terrifying. Recently, I heard that a friend, a kind of a pretty well-known friend in ministry, had uh, said he lost his faith. It was after a trip to Auschwitz with, with his wife. And deeply troubled by that, my wife, my wife Susan, was praying, and she heard the Lord say something like this, sorrow is every bit as powerful as fear when it comes to feeding the enemy. Years ago, she saw, along with another friend, Satan shrink into this little man and heard Jesus say, with fear, he shrank as we prayed, as we prayed, he shrank. And then Jesus walked in the room, smiled, and he said, with fear, you put flesh on the evil one. Sorrow is every bit as powerful as fear. Susan said unsurrendered sorrow was understood, but this is what she heard. She has this words of knowledge gift. It fascinates me. But she heard the Lord say, sorrow is every bit as powerful as fear when it comes to feeding the enemy. And then Jesus told her what to do with her sorrow. Well, this is a psalm of sorrow. But how do we feed the enemy? With, with sorrow? That's an open-ended question that I hope that you keep considering, but I thought of a few things that occurred to me. Number, number one, when sad, we let sorrow become an accusation. When sad, we know that things are bad and we expect someone to fix it, right? I mean, we think maybe it's our fault. Maybe we blame ourselves. Maybe we blame our, our neighbor but we expect someone to fix the sad and make us glad. Last week, Kathleen started talking about small groups or, or life groups, and I tell you what, this is what will kill a life group. Someone that expects you to fix their sorrow. Or your expect, probably more this one, your expectation that they will fix your sorrow. What is sorrow? Why do we feel sorrow? Isn't it the fact that in some form we've tasted the good and now it's gone? And we desperately want it back. We've seen the light, but now the sun has set and we're longing for the sunrise. We've walked the way, but now we're lost and we want to be found. We've known the truth, but now we're incredibly confused and we want more truth. We've tasted life, but we cannot make life. And now the grave beckons to us at the end of our life, we think. We've felt love, but now we feel alone. We've tasted the good, and now we know evil. 
You understand there's a lot, a whole lot to be sad about in this world. I mean, I hope I don't need to elucidate that very much for you. Death, war, famine, rape, lies, even worse, the constant shame, condemnation, and loneliness that gnaws at your spirit in the depths of your soul. We're all dying, and you can't fix it. And none of these people, none of your neighbors can, can fix it. And, and we all struggle because we want to know, well, who to blame? It's interesting that the psalmist doesn't blame anyone but God. I mean, why did he put that tree in the middle of the garden? Why did he subject creation to futility? Why did he consign all people to disobedience? Why does he hide his face? Well, anyway, when sad, we let sorrow become an accusation. In other words, we become the accuser. Two, maybe when sad, we let sorrow become a weapon. It's, you know, it's tempting to blame with our sorrow and manipulate with our sorrow. I'm actually pretty good at it. Yes, Susan, you really did. You really did hurt my feelings. And so, yeah, you probably should think about a way to make it up to me. And no, you really cannot expect anything from me because I'm so deeply wounded. I'm wounded. When sorrow becomes a weapon, we shoot anyone that might make us happy. Number three, sometimes when sad, we let sorrow become a prison. You know, sometimes it feels so good, even politically correct, to say something like this. You know, no one understands my pain. Nobody knows my sorrow. In other words, I'm alone, and, well, I'm kind of addicted to my aloneness. I, I'm sad because I'm alone, and I'm alone so that I can be sad. I often justify myself with sorrow because nobody knows how much I've suffered, because nobody knows my sorrow, uh, nobody knows how much I deserve another beer or a little porn, or the pleasure of some bitterness, anger, maybe even some rage. We feed the enemy when sad, and we let sorrow become our prison. We, we let sorrow become our idol, our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In other words, our justification. Sometimes, a lot of times, you know, when we pray, like it's particularly at staff meetings, but board meetings too, or sometimes in our small groups, someone will pray, express some sorrow, elicit sympathy, compassion, and respect, and I'll think to myself, hey, I got more sorrow than them. My mom died. Yeah, yeah, my mom died, and I only got three hours of sleep last night, and I have diarrhea. I'm sadder than you. I win. I'm sad. Sometimes when sad, we let sorrow become our identity. I had a roommate in college who just really loved being sad. It was like his identity. I remember thinking, dang, Brad, if you were ever happy, you'd just be so sad. I mean, he wore sad, like the goth kids in high school. 
You know, there are a million forms of kind of wearing your, your sad, a million ways to scowl. But if sad is your identity, if you constantly wear your sorrow, you probably never feel your sorrow. And now you're probably thinking, whoa, Peter's right. That's profound. I mean, I'm sure you're always thinking that. Wow, Peter's right. That's, that's profound. It's bad what we do with sad. In fact, it kind of makes me mad, so I'm going to decide just to be glad. <laughs> well, do you have that power? And if you really had that power, should you use that power? Because there is an awful lot to be sad about. And Jesus said, weep with those who weep. Well, anyway, maybe we feed the enemy when, when sad and we, we hide our sorrow. And so hide from sorrow. So we never actually feel sorrow or joy. Do you remember when Eve and the first Adam took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They, they took the fruit and everything went bad. And they hid the sad that they had and pretended to be glad. They hid themselves in the leaves from the trees. I mean, maybe we all have a secret sorrow, and it manifests in myriad ways and all manners of, all manner of circumstances. Like, we all have a secret sorrow, and we can barely even admit that to ourselves because that sorrow is ourselves, <laughs> our lonely selves. It's the self that took the life of the good from the tree in the garden. It's the self that constantly wants the good and yet constantly crucifies the good. It's the self that wants to be I am and realizes that I am not. It's the self that wants to justify itself and cannot. They hid themselves in the leaves of the trees. I think it was the leaves of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, the law. In other words, I think they got religion. They suddenly knew that the sad they had was bad and so pretended to be glad, which will drive you mad! And now I need to stop rhyming and just tell you that I am actually serious as a heart attack. I've known an awful lot of people that have killed themselves. And almost always they found a way to be alone in their sorrow. And often that way was religion. Human religion. Sometimes I'll watch TV preachers, and like I told you, I just find myself so depressed. And, and then I'll go read my Bible and think, hey, I'm not alone. It is not good for the Adam, humanity, to be alone. And I'm not alone. So what are we supposed to do with our sorrow? Well, I think we just did it. I find it utterly fascinating that Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and then died in the wilderness because they hid their sorrow. Deuteronomy 1.29, because they murmured in their tents. What is murmuring? It's just expressing your sorrow, right? But they murmured in their tents. They, they murmured. Uh, but in, but in, the, in the Psalms, God basically commands Israel to come murmur in his tent, his tabernacle, 
His sanctuary. It's like he's saying, I know you think it. I know you feel it. I know that you know it. Now come admit it together in my tent before my throne. Y'all chant this together. Psalm 88, 1, I'll teach it to you. It begins like this. O Lord, God of my salvation. In Hebrew, that sounds just like this. Yahweh Elohim, Yeshua T. Lord God, my Yeshua. Well, that sounds kind of familiar, huh? Kind of like, Lord God, my Jesus. It ends like this. You have caused my beloved, who's, who's his beloved? You have caused my beloved and, and my friend to, to shun me. My companions have become darkness. So, so the Lord God, Jesus, says, y'all get together before my throne and tell me how alone y'all feel. Do that together. You know, in sorrow, our fig leaves are kind of like stripped away, right? We just can't kind of maintain them when the more intense the sorrow gets. And our naked longing for love is just exposed. Rabbi Kushner used to tell about a Chinese woman who lost her family, and in deep despair, she asked a wise man what she should do. And the wise man said, this is what you should do. You should go to every family in the village and collect a mustard seed from anyone that has not known sorrow. And so she did, knocked on every door, asked every person about their sorrow, and she did not collect one mustard seed. And yet that word of the wise man was the seed that grew into a kingdom and a family as large as her entire village. See, that's why you need a life group. <laughs> that's why you need a small group. Those are just words that church people throw around. That's why you need a friend that you can be honest with. That's why you need a Christian friend. That's why you need maybe a, a prayer partner to just share your sorrow. You cannot fix their sorrow, and they cannot fix your sorrow. You're just supposed to, 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 to share it. Just share the sorrow. Maybe even pray Psalm 88. Uh, out loud, pray it together. And, and, but as you pray it, notice that someone else is praying it with you. Someone in the same pit, experiencing the same sorrow, or maybe a very similar sort of sorrow. We all have this sorrow, and yet our sorrow is, is unique. But someone else is praying the very same prayer. But, but now, but now, what if you don't have any friends? I mean, perhaps you're a prisoner, long forgotten in some concentration camp, somewhere over in Poland or in, in Germany. Perhaps you're lying alone in a nursing home, and all of your friends have died. Perhaps you're, you're dying. Isn't that something? that we each must somehow do alone. Perhaps you're just misunderstood. Or at least you think that you're misunderstood, that no one understands your sorrow. Psalm 88 is particularly meaningful to me because about 13 years ago I recited this psalm in this room, standing on this floor, with a group of people, some of those people from this church. I wasn't alone, but I felt very, very, very alone. I felt entirely misunderstood by my fellow pastors, 
misunderstood by people in my denomination and my church. I knew that some in my church were using my situation for a personal advantage, but I couldn't really point that out. Even some in my family were swayed to think that I was deluded, and, and I knew this because God had revealed it to me. It was all happening according to God's plan. Well, this dungeon is called the sacred pit, that is, holy hell. It was discovered in 1889 in close proximity to what archaeologists believe to be the house of Caiaphas, the high priest in ancient Jerusalem. Along with a large number of Byzantine artifacts, archaeologists discovered three Byzantine crosses, that's from like the fourth or third century, carved into the limestone at the top of the pit, through which the prisoner would be lowered into this dungeon. For these reasons, because of the artifacts and the markings, many think that this was the holding cell in which Jesus was kept after he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, questioned by Annas and Caiaphas, beaten, then betrayed by Peter the night before he hung on the tree and cried, My God, why have you forsaken me? Well, anyway, feeling alone and forsaken in this pit, with some of you, I prayed this prayer, Psalm 88. We read it out loud all together. And according to tradition, at least some traditions, in this pit, Jesus also prayed this prayer. Psalm 88, verse 3. My life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. Isaiah 53, verse 4, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 12, he was numbered, he was counted among the transgressors. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. Verse 5, like one set loose, one set free among the dead. That is such an incredible description of humanity, isn't it? We all say, oh, we're free, look, I'm free. Yeah, you've been set free among the dead. Verse six, you have put me in the depths of the pit. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. With whom do you get most wrathful? I mean, with whom do you get most angry? I mean, think about that. Isn't it the people you love? Like your kids? (laughs) And don't you bear your own anger? I mean, don't you suffer it for them when you get angry at your kids? Every good father does that. And God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Verse 8, you have caused my my companions to shud me. You have made me a horror, literally an abomination to them. Scripture says that God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, that we uh, might in him become the the righteousness of, of God. 88 verse 10, do you work wonders for the dead? That's a pertinent question. Does he? Do the departed, now in Hebrew this is interesting because the word is Raphaim. It's real easy to translate but most versions don't translate. The word means ghosts. Do the ghosts rise up to praise you? Isaiah 26, 19, the earth will give birth to the Raphaim. 
You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. 88.11, is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Abaddon is like the deepest part of Sheol or hell. In the morning, Jesus is gonna cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the first line you know, of Psalm 22. It, it continues with this declaration. I will tell of your name to my brothers and then before him shall bow all who go down to the dust and lastly, he has done it. It is finished. 88.12, are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? The thief next to him said, remember me. And he did. Why do you cast my soul away, Psalm 88.14? Why do you hide your face from me, O Lord? How could Jesus pray something like that? Or, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 88.18, you have caused, you have caused my beloved. Who is Jesus' beloved? You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Jesus was alone. But maybe 13 years ago, I was alone with him in the same pit. You know, earlier that night after Jesus gave us his body and blood, after he begged Peter, James, and John to simply be with him, but they slept for sorrow. As he sank into the deepest of all sorrow in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed something absolutely remarkable. He, he, he prayed, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. Have you ever thought about that? Not my will, but thy will. Jesus is God's will. Jesus is God's word. Jesus is God's judgment. How could God the Son's will be different than God the Father's will unless he had somehow made himself captive to our will? A prisoner of our sorrow, like a mustard seed imprisoned in broken and dirty earth. Let's map it out, okay? Let's just map it out. Thy will is God's will, and it's literally ecstatic. In, Greece, in, in, in Greek, it comes from the word ecstasis, which means out of oneself. God is constantly giving himself away in ecstatic joy. The word for that, I think, is love. My will is my will, and it's kind of sad. It's... Uh, Self-centered, it has become stuck on itself. Je Jesus prayed, not my will, but thy will be done. I think he calls, I think he calls our will um, his will, so whose will is this? See, I think this is the miracle. I think that this is called faith. It is the will to surrender our will to God's will. It is Christ willingly 
willing, God's will in us. His free, God has free will. His free will in us. God, in other words, is growing something in the garden of sorrow. And it's called faith. Faith, such that we would lose our lives and find them in the great dance who is love and life. In communion, Jesus gives us his will and bears the burden of our will. It's an act of creation. It's the supreme act of creation. It's the act of being born from above. Just before Jesus went to the garden and then to the tree, he said to his disciples, he said this, a little while and you will not see me. Jesus is literally the face of God. So listen closely. A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, full of sorrow, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Your sorrow will turn into joy. Let me say that again. Your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being, literally a man, singular, uh, like the Adam, uh, Adam, or maybe actually the Adam, the Adam has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. The joy is eternal. Jesus is the promised seed planted in the field of our sorrow, giving birth to the kingdom of God. Sorrow is the experience of not seeing God's face. Sorrow is a longing for communion with the way, the truth, and the life. In, in every moment, every moment of your space and time, sorrow is a longing for the good, which is love, that is life. Sorrow is a longing for communion with God. And your sorrow will turn into joy. So, when sad, don't feed the devil your sorrow. When said, don't accuse or turn your sorrow into a weapon or let it become your prison or your idol or your identity. But also don't hide the sorrow. And don't hide from your sorrow. So what are we to do with our sorrow? <laughs> well, I think we're supposed to feel our sorrow with God and the people around you. And that is exactly what Israel was doing um, in Psalm 88, experiencing a communion of sorrow, and in that communion, a miracle would happen. And it does happen. The veil rips open, covering the throne, and we see the face of God. The glory of God shining in the face of a man that we know, Jesus, a lamb standing on the throne as if newly slain. So, when sad, don't accuse. And yet you've already accused, haven't you? Don't let it be a weapon, yet it's already become a weapon. A whip and a cross. Don't let it become a prison, but it's already become a prison. For Jesus, he suffers what you suffer. 
Don't let it become your idol, but, but you have, and to free you, Christ has died and descended. Uh, don't, don't, don't let it become your identity, but you have, and yet Christ has descended into your identity, the dark pit that you think is you. So don't, don't hide from your sorrow, because this is the miracle. You will find Christ born into your sorrow. Your utterly unique sorrow that will turn into your utterly unique and eternal joy. Psalm 88, 12. Are your wonders known in the darkness? Hell yes! That is precisely where they become that's where they become known. The, the light shines in the darkness. It's there that the Christ child is born. It's there that we learn to recognize the face of our God who is love. So when sad, remember, you're not alone. There are seven billion other sad people in this pit with you. But far more than that, God has descended into your sorrow and descended into their sorrow. You are in the pit with Jesus, for Jesus is always in the pit with you, even the pit that you thought was you. Well, commune with Jesus in your sorrow, and it will rise from the dead as joy. Emma was a Holocaust survivor. I think probably Auschwitz, I don't know that for sure, but she was a Holocaust survivor who regularly at 4 p.m. each day stood outside a Manhattan church on the sidewalk and screamed insults at Jesus. Finally, the pastor, Bishop Kilmer Miles, went outside and he said to Emma, he said, Emma, why don't you just go in and tell him? She disappeared into the church an hour went by, and, and the bishop kind of became worried and so decided to look in on her. He found Emma prostrate on the floor before the cross, absolutely still. He, he, he bent down, and he touched her on the shoulder. She looked up with tears in her eyes and softly said, well, after all, he was a Jew if you're in a place of deep sorrow today, that's all you need to know. Jesus is sad too. He's in your pit and you're in his. Anything more is largely conjecture and maybe too offensive for you to hear just now. But if you can hear, the psalmist does ask a rather fascinating question. Why do you hide your face, O Lord? We know that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. That's what Scripture says. And yet he does seem to hide his face or allow us to hide his face. In other words, he consigns us or he subjects us to sorrow. So this week, working on this sermon, sitting at my desk, I, I remember I just said, yeah, God, this is frustrating why do you hide your face? Why would a good father or a good mother ever hide their face from their own beloved child? And then suddenly I thought of, of this. Hello. 
Goodbye. Hello. <laughs> Goodbye. Hello. <laughs> Goodbye. Hello. <laughs> Goodbye. Let me translate. Mom says, hello. And baby thinks, oh, life is good and I'm happy. Mom says, goodbye. And baby thinks, what the hell? Oh my God, what the hell just happened? Mom says, hello. And baby thinks, life is good and I'm, I'm happy. Mom covers her face, says goodbye, and baby thinks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But did you notice, each time mom says hello, the baby's delight increases just a little bit. I mean, if you would watch this longer, you'd see that ev even more. Each time, faith, hope, and love grow just a little bit. You see, maybe our sorrow really does turn into joy. Maybe God is playing hide-and-seek our entire life, our entire journey through this fallen world. Maybe your entire existence in this world is like just one segment of peekaboo in which the Father hides his face until the curtain in the depths of your temple rips and you see his face and you know, I am is good and I am is grace. You know, I was surprised to find that there are all kinds of YouTube videos on the internet teaching parents how to play peekaboo with their infants. Because psychologists say it's an integral part of developing a baby's psyche, a baby's ability to love and be loved. It teaches a baby something called object permanence. It's the knowledge that even though you can't see mom, she's there. Do you know that your father's name is I am? There's nothing more permanent. There's nothing more foundational. There's nothing more trustworthy than he. Well, anyway, Peekaboo teaches a baby object permanence, and I think it teaches one other thing. Grace. Our journey through sorrow and into joy teaches us that, that nothing is more permanent or foundational than our God who is good, and it teaches us that everything good is absolute grace. Soon the game will be finished, but you will endlessly delight in what you have learned. You will have learned faith in grace, and God is grace, and you will inherit all things by grace, little children of God. Well, anyway, whether God covers his face or allows us to cover our faces is a deep philosophical question. But it's clear that babies learn to love peekaboo so much that they'll cover their own face just for the thrill of seeing their mom's face. Peekaboo! Where'd you go? Where'd you go? You're so silly.
Where'd you go? Oh. Where'd you go? Where'd you go? Oh, here you are. Well, you see, maybe our Father actually really does uphold all things with his word. Maybe every good gift comes from our Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Maybe he will actually never leave us nor forsake us, even though we think he's left us and he's forsaken us. Maybe he's playing like peekaboo all the time. Maybe he's playing peekaboo, and maybe he's even inside of you helping you ask the question, where's mom? Where's dad? Who loves me, and who do I love? Maybe. Maybe. But this much I know. When sad, you're not alone. So when sad, be sad with Jesus. And where's Jesus? Well, he's all around you in his temples, maybe even playing a little peekaboo. Where's Jesus? He's all around you in his temples, and he's, uh, oh, yeah, and he's right here on his throne. He takes the bread, saying, this is my body. And Scripture says, this is also a veil. Do this in remembrance of me. He remembers you. And he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood. It's communion. Drink of it, all of you. Communion, I think that means, in other words, bring your sorrow to this table. Bring your sorrow to his sorrow. Bring your sorrow to this table. Tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and, and ingest it. Ingest it into the pit of your stomach. The pit of your sorrow the pit of that broken and dirty soil, and then begin to worship. And as you go back to your seat, and as you're, as you're worshiping, I think he wants to whisper something to your heart. Sweetheart, you're pregnant with joy. Single barren one who did not bear, writes Isaiah, Sing and cry aloud, for the children of the sad are more than the children of her who is married. In his own body of flesh, he told us, happy. Do you remember what he said? Happy are those who mourn. Whatever the case, surrender your sorrow.
fact, maybe you can even picture it. While I was talking, were you thinking of a pit? Were you going to bring that up here and you're going to lay it on his table, okay? You're going to give that to him and then receive something from him. Let's worship. You came to this table thinking of a pit. You just need to know Jesus is in that pit too. Even if you didn't come to this table because you're still a little scared of this table, I think it's still true that Jesus is in your pit. I don't know how long until you'll hear peekaboo, but I'm convinced of this. You will hear it. And one day they will throw your pit into a fire, cremate it. It will turn to dust. Or they'll drop your pit in an even deeper, deeper pit six, six feet down. And then you'll hear it for the last time. Peekaboo! <laughs> and so, Lord God, I pray that you would help us now to believe. Because, God, you are good. And you have descended into every pit and you will fill all things with yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let me finish my slideshow. When sad, don't feed the enemy with sorrow. When sad, feel sad with Jesus. And that's how God feeds you with joy. Susan heard the Lord say this, sorrow is every bit as powerful as fear when it comes to feeding the enemy. You must give all sorrow and fear to me. Now, I'm making a huge theological point, but I'm also making a very practical point, a point that even rhymes. When, when I just share my sad, I mean, when I don't manipulate people with it, when I don't expect them to fix it, when I don't feed my sad to, to the enemy. When, when I just share my sad, I find myself glad. Then sad is not so bad. In fact, these are some of the best times I've ever had. <laughs> you know Bud, I think Bud was sitting here. Bud leads the prayer sometimes up in the service in Evergreen, and he asked us to picture a time when we were most felt most close to Jesus. Every time I pictured a, a, a time when I was sad, and I knew that Jesus was there, and I was glad. It's interesting that Heman, who wrote this psalm, was also present in 2 Chronicles 5. This is just so cool. He was singing, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. In that old stone temple, when the glory of God filled Solomon's new temple, and the priests could not even stand, and everyone began to worship, and everyone began to offer sacrifices in just ecstatic joy. Your sorrow will turn into joy. And if you simply share it with Jesus in the temple that is your neighbor, you may find it already happening today. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel.
And if you'd like prayer, members of the prayer team will be down front with you. You know, we have all sorts of different sorrows. That's, that's part of the way God arranged it. Um, and so some are really intense, some are smaller. Uh, the amazing thing is I think that the, the more intense your sorrow, the more thrilled you're going to be when he says peekaboo. So, so he's giving you the very best possible thing he can give you. That's, that's the way God is. But if you have a sorrow today and you would like prayer, come down front and, and don't expect them to fix it. They can't fix it. God can fix it. At the right time, he will. But just share your sorrow. A lot of times, I think all Jesus wants to say to us is, yeah, that does hurt, doesn't it? <laughs> He's with you. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel. We want prayer. Members of the prayer team will be down front. Next week, we'll be in Psalm chapter 2 talking about laughter. Okay, so read Psalm 2 this week.